Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness, may God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it, may a cloud settle on it, may the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it, may it not rejoice among the days of the year, may it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren, may no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light, but have none, and not see the dawning of the day, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves. Or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in. For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. Let's ask God for his blessing. O Lord, as we begin our study now of the discourses between Job and his friends, we ask that you will enlighten our eyes by your Spirit so that we may understand your word, especially some of the difficulties in this uh, very difficult book. We ask also that you will, by your Spirit, lead us into a proper application of this book to ourselves, that you will help us to Uh, understand why Job said what he did and why his friends said what they did and grant also that your name may be glorified in us through Jesus Christ our Lord Amen Before I begin I just want to mention this uh, commentary to you this is the Uh, Tyndale Old Testament commentary on Job written by a man named Francis Anderson and if you had this available to you you would see I think that I owe quite a bit to this commentary in the course of my uh, 
discussion of this third chapter in the book of Job. There are several things that uh, I want to say by way of introduction to this. First of all, we should understand that Job and his friends, as they begin their discourses here in chapter 3, have no idea what has been going on in heaven. They do not know, as we know, that Satan had been inciting God against Job. And that Satan is therefore an agent, in fact the immediate agent, in Job's sufferings. They can see only the sufferings themselves. Nor, and this more importantly, and we all understand this, do they know why this suffering has come on Job. We have at least some understanding from chapters 1 and 2 why the suffering has come on Job. But Job and his friends have no idea at all. They have to try to derive an understanding of Job's suffering from their knowledge of God and his ways and from the revelation that God had already given to his people up to that time. They do know, of course, that this is God's hand on Job. And it is that fact, in, in fact, that his friends try to explain by saying Job must have sinned. God is chastising Job for his sins. And it's that fact, especially, which troubles Job so much throughout his speeches in this book. It's not the um, actual sufferings themselves that are so much trouble to him as the fact that God has turned against him, or at least it seems to him that God has turned against him. We don't find here, therefore, a, a Stoic in Job uh, or his friends, a, a Stoic philosophy, uh, this too shall pass, or this is the way life goes. It's not that kind of explanation that they find at all helpful in Job's suffering, nor do we find any of them railing against an irrational fate. Rather, they are seeking to explain Job's suffering in terms of God's sovereignty. And his friends, of course, think that they know the answer to the question, why did God do this? It's in Job that we find the constant uh, wrestling with the question and the constant agony over the question why has God done this? Now, in this first speech that Job makes after uh, his friends come to him, we read about the coming of his friends in the last part of chapter 2. Job is not really yet, I think, speaking to his friends. Nor is he in this first chapter uh, speaking to God. He's really, I think, talking to himself. We may talk of this as a soliloquy on the part of Job. 
he's talking uh, in the hearing of his friends, but he asks his friends no questions. He makes no direct address to his friends. He's simply expressing as much as he is able the extent of his sufferings and complaining of the extent of his sufferings. And of course, uh, this chapter is often rightly called Job's cursing of the day of his birth. But that's not really the only thing he does here in this chapter. We can divide the chapter, I think, into five parts. First of all, in verses 3 to 10, we find him cursing the day of his birth. That's the the part of the chapter in which we find that curse. But then in verses 11 to 15, we find him wishing that he had died at birth. In verses 16 to 19, he wishes that he had been stillborn. In verses 20 to 23, he deplores his life. And in verses 24 to 26, he tries to give some kind of description of his sorrow. I think those are the five sections of the chapter. And we're going to begin, of course, with verses 3 to 10, where Job curses the day of his birth. Now, what we have first in those uh, verses is a kind of summary statement in verse 3, in which Job curses first, really, the day of his birth, and then the night of his conception. May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. So he he takes in both of those things in this section. Not only the day of his birth, but also the night of his conception. And then in verses 4 to 9, he first curses that day, and or 4 and 5, did I say 4 and 5? He curses that day, and in verses 6 to 9, he curses that night. So that's basically how this uh, is structured. And verse 10 then explains the reason for his curse. So as we, as we look at verses 4 and 5 then, there are two things that we want to notice. First of all, we want to notice that there is a, a, a strong emphasis, a very strong emphasis on darkness here. He wants there to be no light on that day. May that day be darkness. And then skipping the next line, we'll come back to that in a moment. May the light not shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. In other words, he wants this day to cease to be. He wants it to go into the darkness of of oblivion. He wants there to be no light on that day. 
And the second thing that we notice then about these verses is that he doesn't want God to reckon it among the days of the earth. May God above not seek it. I think his idea is may God not reckon this day on which I was born as one of the days of the earth's time. So he's wishing then that this day simply had never been. As it were, that the uh, time had gone from night to night without any day between. And darkness had overtaken that day completely. And then in verses 6 to 9, he curses the night. And I think it's the night of his conception that he's cursing here. Not the night of his birth so much as the night of his conception. And again, there is a strong emphasis on darkness. First of all, at the beginning of verse 6, as for that night may darkness seize it. And then again in verse 9, may the stars of its morning be dark, may it look for light but have none, and not see the dawning of the day. And there you should see, I think, in verse 9, progression. First of all, he talks about the stars of the morning. That is those stars that are visible in the sky before the morning comes and shed some light on the earth. Then he, in the next part of that progression, is the, the light that begins to show on the horizon before the sun rises. That dim morning light before the sun rises. And finally, the dawning of the day. And so, what he's saying here in verse 9 is, First, may there be no light in that night. May the stars of its morning be dark. And then may that night never end. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day. He wants darkness, in fact, complete darkness, to overtake that night. The word that he uses for darkness in verse 6, is a word that we might translate as thick darkness. There's, uh, other, there are other references to this darkness in the book of Job. First of all, in chapter 10, verses 20 to 22, and it's not difficult to imagine that these are also Job's words, are not my days few cease? Leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. And then again in chapter 23, verse 17, chapter 23, verse 17, I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. That word that's there translated deep darkness is the word that we find in Job 3. And finally, in Job 
chapter 28, verse 3 as well. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. And here he's talking about mining ore, so he's talking about the darkness which you would find in a mine where there is no light at all. He's talking about absolute darkness, darkness without any light, the kind of darkness that overtook the land of Egypt in the ninth plague. Let there be, then, he says, no light to that night and no end to it. So that's the first thing that we should notice. The second thing is that really he wishes again for the same thing for the night that he had wished for the day, the night of his conception. And that's in verse 6, the second and third parts of that verse. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. I wish, he says, that that night could simply be torn out of the calendar altogether so that I could never have been conceived. And then uh, in the next verse, O may that night be barren, may no joyful shout come into it. And I think he's here transferring the uh, idea of the night to his mother's conception, actually. May that night be barren, that is no bringing forth of me in that night, and may no joyful shout, joyful shout of conception come into that night. And then we have a very difficult verse in verse 8, which we're going to have to spend a little bit more time on. May those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. You will find in at least many modern commentators that this is explained by references to pagan mythology, which they say influences also some of the uh, some other scripture passages. The Leviathan to them is a great sea monster who caused the original chaos of the um, earth before God said, "Let there be light." and then began to separate the dry land from the waters, and so on. And they would then interpret this as meaning that there are certain sorcerers who might summon that Leviathan, and who might uh, uh, ask that Leviathan, or conjure that Leviathan, perhaps we should say, to wrap himself around the sun and extinguish it. And so Job is here borrowing from this pagan mythology, not necessarily believing this pagan mythology, but borrowing from this pagan mythology to express the vehemence of his feelings against the night of his conception. I prefer to avoid that kind of explanation. I think that the Leviathan is probably a real beast described perhaps in somewhat uh, exaggerated terms in Job chapter 41, maybe a crocodile, maybe uh, some uh, whale or shark or something like that from the great deeps, or even perhaps a dinosaur uh, that lived in the ocean prior to 
that uh, the extinction of the dinosaurs, whatever it is that Job is thinking about here, a, a real beast, and he's imagining then that some people uh, take up a struggle against this beast, perhaps try to capture it, uh, to make use of it for food or for whatever purpose, and then find that they are overmastered really by it, that they have taken on more than they can handle and who begin to curse vehemently the day that they actually tried to arouse this Leviathan. And he's saying, saying then, I wish that they would direct the vehemence of their curses against the night of my birth. I wish that they would curse the night, or the night of my conception. I wish that they would cons- uh, curse the night of my conception as they are cursing the day that they tried to arouse the Leviathan with a great vehemence of feeling then. But we have to admit that that verse is somewhat obscure and that this explanation is therefore somewhat conjectural. And then finally in verse 10 we find Job explaining why. He curses the day of his birth and the night of his conception It did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb. Because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, I was born, and I have now to suffer as I am suffering. It did not hide sorrow from my eyes. So Job wishes then that he had never been conceived and that he had never been born. Now, going on then to the next section, I think what we see here is that Job wishes that he had died at birth. He's he's making the next step, in other words. He's saying, I wish I had not been conceived. I wish I had not been born. But since I was conceived and since I was born, I wish I had died at birth. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? And then again, I think you see progression in the, in this verse and the next. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? You see a progression from the mother's womb to the mother's knees as the child who is born is placed on her knees, and then from the mother's knees to the mother's breasts as the mother takes the child to her to nurse it. And Job says, I wish that none of this had happened. I wish my mother had not nursed me. I wish... First, that I had not come from the womb. If I had to come from the womb, I wish that my mother's knees had not received me. If I wish that if my mother's knees had received me, that she had never begun to nurse me, that I had just simply perished immediately after birth. And again, he gives as his reason, for now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. He longs for death because he's looking at death as relief from suffering. He's not looking beyond that. He's not thinking about death as God's judgment on sin or anything of that sort. He's simply looking at the end of earthly life. And he's saying, if only I had died when I was born, I would be at rest. I would never have had to endure this suffering. And he says it really four times there. 
in verse 13. Again, you get this sense of the urgency and the vehemence of his feelings. I would have lain still. I would have been quiet. I would have been asleep. I would have been at rest. Four different times he says essentially the same thing. He longs for the quiet of the grave. But he carries on with this then into verses 14 and 15. And here again we encounter some difficulty. I would have been at rest, he says, with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. What does he mean when he says these kings and counselors built ruins for themselves? That's the most difficult question in the verses. I think myself that Job is speaking in a very highly compressed manner here. He's omitting a lot of things that he wants us to understand are there in his thought, but he's not expressing them directly. What he's imagining here is kings and counselors who are getting together to plan and then to carry out plans for building projects. They're building palaces and they're building fortifications and they're building cities and they're uh, building empires. They're building all kinds of different things. But Job looks at what they have done, historically speaking, and he says, and all they've done has come to ruin. It's as if in all their effort, in all their work, They have built ruins for themselves. That's the compression of his thought here. You look at history and you would say these kings and counselors' work has all been futile. It's all come to ruin at the end. Perhaps he was thinking about the Tower of Babel or or some early empire of the kings of men. And he says it's all been futile. but, But these kings and counselors don't care anymore. They've come to the grave. All the futility of their works means nothing to them. They expended great effort during their lives and ultimately it has come to nothing, but they're indifferent because they are in the quiet of the grave. And I wish that I could be like that. My life is as futile as theirs. And I wish that I could be with them in the grave, as indifferent to my life as they were indifferent, are indifferent to all the efforts of their lives. And the second part of that in verse 15, then I think has the same idea. These princes accumulated gold and silver for themselves. They filled their houses with gold and silver. Perhaps they even had some of their gold and silver buried with them so that they could take it to the afterlife. But they too are in the position of not caring anymore. They too are in the quiet of the grave and their gold and their silver no longer matters to them. I would like to be like them. Indifferent to all the strenuous effort and all the troubles of my life. So that's his next wish. Why did I not die at birth? In verses 16 to 19, then, 
he wishes that he was stillborn. So he, he goes backwards now. He, he begins with his conception, then he goes to the day of his birth, then he, he goes to the dying at birth. He wishes he had died at birth. And now he takes a step backwards and says, if he says, I, I just wished that I had died at birth, but, but that's not really enough. I wish that I had been stillborn. I wish that I had never been born living at all. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw the light? That stillborn child is hidden because no one really ever came to know that child or even to see that child except its mother and the midwife and maybe a couple of others. The child was altogether a hidden child. And the infant never saw the light. He says, I wish that I could be like the stillborn child who never saw the light. And then he goes back again in the rest of that to the explanation why he feels that way. Verses 17 to 19, There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. He reviews all kinds of different men, and he says, In the grave these all become as indifferent as the kings and counselors and princes. In fact, they're not only indifferent, they find rest. The wicked cease from troubling. I think he means they cease from troubling themselves. There is no rest, says the Lord, for the wicked. They are never at rest as long as they live here in this life. But, Job says, when they get to the grave, they find rest. There, the weary are at rest. He's talking about all those who toil and labor throughout all of their life, who who work night and day for whatever goals they have set themselves in this life. And finally, with relief at the end of life, they lay down their burden of work and they rest. There the prisoners rest together. And these are not prisoners who are bound up in the dungeon, but prisoners who are forced to do hard labor and who have supervisors over them who oppress them and who beat them with whips and who make their lives miserable, who try to get as much work out of them as possible every day that they live and do not care if they die soon. There in the grave, the prisoners also rest, and they no longer hear the voice of their oppressors. The small and the great are there, both great men and small men. And the servant, whose life was made miserable by his cruel master, is freed from that oppression as well. So he longs to be like any of these men. He envies them. The wicked, the weary, the prisoners, the small and the great, and the servant. He says, I wish I could be like all of those who have died before me and have found the rest of the grave. When you take that all together with verses uh, 11 to 15, what you see then is that Job is reviewing all kinds and classes of people and people in all kinds of different situations in life, but people who have died. 
He says, it wouldn't matter to me which one of them I was like so long as I could be in the grave along with them. In verses 20 to 23, then, the fourth part of this chapter, he deplores his life. So we've seen him talk about his conception, his birth, uh, his dying at birth, his being stillborn. He reviews all the possible stages of his early life. And now he comes to his life as it is now. And he says, really, I wish I were dead. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Who long for death, but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly, and you could, that word rejoice there, you could almost translate as dance. Who, who dance exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom, whom God has hedged in? He says then here, um, I cannot find any reason why I should live along with all those others who long for death. Why does God simply not simply take my life and the lives of such men away altogether. They long for death. They search for it. They rejoice exceedingly when it's drawing near. So why should life be given to them? And notice that in verse 23, he uses the word hedged that Satan used in verse in chapter 1, when he talked about God putting a hedge around Job to prevent harm from coming to him. And Job says, yes, here, there is a hedge around me. But he doesn't see it as Satan sees it. He sees it as God himself hedging him into this life and preventing him from escaping from this life. Why, why does God keep my life in existence? My life is useless. My life is miserable. I want no part of it. Why does he not simply let me die? So he covers all the possibilities, doesn't he? I wish I had not been conceived. I wish I had not been born. I wish I had died at birth. I wish I had been stillborn. I wish I could die now. And then finally, in verses 24 to 26, he tries to give some kind of expression to his sorrow. For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. I would really like to retranslate the words that Job uses here for sighing and groaning. I'd like to translate the first word as groaning. And I'd like to do that because I think that's really the force of that word here. If you look at um, a few passages with me, I think you can see that. 
First of all, in Job, uh, in, not in Job, in Psalm 6, verse 6. This is a lament of David, and David's suffering is also very great here in Psalm 6. Psalm 6, beginning at verse um, 6, I am weary with my groaning. That's the word that Job uses here. I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. uh, David is under the chastening hand of God. You find that word also in Psalm 102, Verse 5, another very strong lament. Psalm 102, verse 5. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken like grass and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetops. So I think it would be better to read there, for my groaning comes before I eat. The groaning, in fact, probably prevents him from eating. And then the second word, I think, would be better translated as roaring. And my roaring pour out like water. This is a word that Eliphaz uses in chapter 4, verse uh, 10, where he's talking about lions, the roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. And this is the word that we find again in another great psalm of lament, Psalm 22, verse 1 that psalm of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning or from the words of my roaring. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. So he uses very strong words here. Sighing seems to be too too soft a word for what Job is trying to express here. My groaning comes before before I eat, and my roarings pour out like water. He also reminds us of his time of prosperity when he says in verse 25, For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. In his prosperity, he had sometimes thought about What would it be like if I lost all these good things? And he had been afraid. It had been the stuff of nightmares to him during the time of his prosperity. And he says here, exactly what I feared has come upon me. And then he ends his lament with that poignant verse 26 saying the same thing basically four times. 
And in the Hebrew, this is really four sentences or four clauses. And each of those clauses is only two words. We can't get at it by um, an English translation. We can't reduce it to two words each. But he says, I am not at ease and I am not quiet and I have no rest and trouble comes. And uh, Anderson says in that verse, those four sentences stab like a knife. So what we see here, I think, in Job is despair. Black despair. There's no, no desire here on the part of Job to live. There's no hope here of everlasting life. We find no confession in this chapter like that. We find in chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, I know that my Redeemer lives, and though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. There's nothing of that here. There's no confession similar to that of the Apostle Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain which Paul confessed, remember, in the face of uh, death itself. Job would have said, at least at this moment, to live is misery and to die is peace. And he would mean only to die is cessation of suffering. That's all he looked for, just the cessation of suffering. We do not find in him any of that fortitude which Solomon exhorts us to in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. We do not find him, therefore, either counting it all joy, to fall into diverse trials. We do not find him uh, able to say anything like Habakkuk would have said in Habakkuk chapter 3, the last uh, few verses of that chapter, of that prophecy as well. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, this had all happened to Job. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Job has fallen somewhat from the strength of his faith in chapters 1 and 2. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or the answer to his wife, shall we receive good from the hand of God and not Adversity. This is just despair, hopeless despair, a longing for death. And yet, and yet, people of God, there is no cursing of God, is there? Here, He does not do what Satan wanted Him to do. 
Even now, in the depths of his despair, he does not curse God. He does not do what his wife advised him to do, curse God and die. He goes only to the point of wishing that he had never been born or that he had died soon after birth. Nor does he suggest in any way that he would like to take his own life. In fact, there are some who would never think of their miserable life as God hedging them in. Job says, God is hedging me into this life. He's preventing me from escaping it. He doesn't contemplate taking his own life. And we have to go back to what we said at the beginning, that this grief of Job is because he has lost God. Again, I think Anderson has a telling comment on this. He says, another general feature of Job's speeches cannot be emphasized too strongly. Scholars who find his volcanic outbursts in the dialogue utterly different from his tranquility in the prologue, overlook the fact that nowhere does Job bewail the losses of chapter 1 nor the illness of chapter 2. In this he is utterly consistent. His concern from beginning to end is God, not his wealth or health, but his life with God. It is because he seems to have lost God that he is in such torment. In fact, it's not so much because he has lost God as because he feels that God has turned against him and it is God himself who is cursing him and pressing his life down to ruin and destruction. Fundamentally, therefore, he retains his integrity even in this and remains a man who loves and seeks after his God. May God bless us with his word.